0: Okay guys, if you could um finish up your conversations and come take a seat. We'll get started real quick here. I always feel a little bit like the uh the teacher that's interrupting good conversations and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, welcome to Providence Road. My name is Matt. I, um, I'm one of the elders here, and I, I have the honor and privilege of bringing you the word this morning. I, um, first off, you guys sounded awesome this morning. I, 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 fe- I felt a bit overwhelmed um, music-wise and just what was being said, but you guys sang the songs for me, and, I, and that's... Um, I don't know, it's, I haven't been able to be here in the past couple of weeks, and just to have my soul kind of uh, charged up by that, I, I, I really, I thank you for just participating and singing and being here and not neglecting, um, you know, the, the singing of the word, not neglecting being together. So um, I really hope that this time, this morning, is filled with truth and, and helps you find uh, freedom and joy in Jesus. And so if you've been with us for any length of time, you know we've been walking our way through, through Genesis. We've been in Genesis for quite a while. Um... We took a lot of time at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, to really get in depth with that and to really think about uh, and take our time unpacking that text because it's so foundational for who we are and uh, so foundational for our worldview and what we believe and, and why we're here and why things are happening the way they, they're happened. And so those, those chapters really help us understand uh, a lot about why we were created and, and the value, the intrinsic value, really, that every human has. And, and so... Um, so those are the first three chapters. Then after, after chapter three, we sort of enter into this phase in Genesis that I like to call the soap opera phase, right? Um, people in my MC have heard me say that several times, but I don't mean that to, to demean the text or to say it's not important. But basically, the Bible doesn't really hold back in kind of describing what's going on, okay? So what do we see? The first thing we see, we see a brother murder his brother. We see God wipe out everyone on the earth, uh, except for a family and some animals that He chooses to save, um, and then God, after that, He promises never to strike down any uh, all the living things again. Um, so He lets the people kind of do their own thing, and what do they do? They go to try to make a name for themselves and try to build a tower and build this tower of Babel and so basically, um, this you know soap opera phase doesn't. Doesn't really stop even after that. So, uh, moving after the Tower of Babel, we're introduced to, to, to Abram, right? And so, uh, it's one of these things that he sort of just kind of comes out of nowhere, right? The, the, the reality is he was probably one of those that was scattered as a result of the, the Tower of Babel, um, but God specifically calls to him. Right. And I, and I kind of want to run through just where we've been with Abram, what's been going on in his life real quick uh, before we get in the text, because I think it sort of sets up what happens in the text really well. So in Genesis uh, 11 and 12, and in the beginning of chapter 12, we see this. We see, um, uh, reading, reading here out, uh, out of Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So we see Abram kind of coming out of nowhere, but God calls him away from his family, away from everything ever he's ever known, and he calls him into um the land of, of Cana. Well, Problem is, he doesn't, he doesn't actually stay there too long. We see r- real quick that there's actually a famine in the land. And in Genesis 13, Abram, um, I mean, actually at the end of 12, Abram goes out of um, Canaan into Egypt. But as he's entering Egypt, he tells his wife, hey, tell the Egyptians that you're my sister so they don't kill me. Right? soap opera type stuff. This is like, why would you do that? And we sort of get a glimpse that while Abram has been called by God and he's really this, this father of our faith, right, he, uh, he has some flaws. The first one we see here is his willingness to sort of to compromise and to, to do whatever it takes to to survive. Um, so then we um, the ev- Egyptians eventually find out that Sarah is Abram's wife, and they send her back to Abram, and they kick him out of Egypt. Right? Um, we see, and so that moves us into chapter thirteen. Chapter th- thirteen begins with Abram actually retracing his steps. It actually um, names all these places he's going. It's it's like this idea that he is okay. He's realized his mistake. And he's turned around and he's trying to retrace and kind of seeking a restart, right? This is much like something we would do when we feel like we have failed God. We sort of seek this restart. And he's seeking this place to where um, he first experienced God, where God first called to him. So he's actually going back through all these things. And um, as he does this, though, uh, some other problems rise up. So Genesis 13, 2 indicates that Ab- uh, Egypt was actually very good to Abram. It says Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And this, this actually created problems. He had so much stuff that the land couldn't support him and his nephew, um, who had been living together and been together this whole time. And as a result of that, uh, Abram and Lot, his nephew, split. Lot goes to live in Sodom. Sodom is eventually, uh, right, or right after that, is conquered, and Lot is captured, Right? But Abram shows boldness and uh, courage. He goes and has this daring night raid, night attack, basically, and rescues his nephew, Lot. So we see this series of events. We see in Genesis 12, um, Abram not really making the best decisions when he's moving into Egypt, but he repents of those things. He moves back. And so in Genesis 13 and 14, we see some maturing. We see some courage. We see him um, making what we would consider probably good decisions, right? And so in Genesis 15, which is where Blake was last week, we see God reaffirming his covenant with Abram. And Blake went over this a lot last week, but I would encourage you to take the time to listen to that sermon. There is so much in Genesis 15 that's so important for us, particularly Genesis 15, 6, which tells us, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This text is is foundational to understanding how our, our salvation is based on faith, not works, right? This was credited to him. He didn't earn it. It was credited to him. Um, and so Genesis 15 also shows us um, God making um, this covenant with Abraham Abram in this case, in this case. So he makes this covenant, but God alone is the one who says he's going to God alone is the one who says he's going to uphold both ends of the covenant. We see in Genesis 15 that God promises to hold a, a his end of the covenant, right, which is to make Abram a great nation, but even if Abram doesn't God still promises to hold up in his um Part of the covenant. And so again, chapter 15, Blake went through it, but it's really, it's this bright neon sign pointing us to something, pointing us to Jesus and saying, okay, how, how is it possible that this God of justice can let Abram get away with the mistakes he's made and, and the, the sin and the failures? How does he do that? Well, it's this, it's this bright neon sign basically pointing us to, to Jesus. Um, and so so I, I would encourage you, uh, the, the, the podcast is online if you, you take the time. I really, I listened to the sermon um, and I really enjoyed it. So it's really, it's solid stuff. So uh, Genesis 15 also gives us the, the indication that Abram was struggling with doubt and anxiety and fear. And this is sort of where we find ourselves in the story this morning, right? Abram could, Abram is likely asking himself, how, how do I, himself, how do I know that I can trust God? does God really want what's, what's best for me? Why is God taking so long to fulfill the promises he made to me? Why can't, why can't I seem to pass these tests that God has put before me? And will God abandon me if I continue to fail these tests? And so I think this is, this is on Abram's heart as, as we um, find ourselves in our text today. So I'm going to read all of uh, Genesis 16. Um, it's pretty long, but... Um, The the words will be on the screen, and and the Bible's there, too, so uh, follow along with me, if you will. So Genesis 16, beginning in verse 1. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Cana for 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she realized that she was pregnant, she treated her mistress with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and ever since she saw that she was pregnant, she has treated me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. And Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your hands, so do whatever you want with her. And Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I am running away from my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said, said to her, you must go back to your mistress and submit to her treatment. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction." This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live at odds with his brothers. So she called the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why she named the spring a well of the living one who sees me. It's located between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son Hagar had. Hagar had. Um, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Uh, pray with me real quick. Um, Jesus, we see a, a ton uh, going on in this text, and I pray that um, uh, we will um, just, God, your spirit will go forth and, and, and um, open the eyes and ears of the people and speak through me as I'm here to um, just what, what you have for us this morning through this text. I, um, we're so thankful that you are a God who sees us and hears us, and we're so thankful for the provision you made for us in uh, Jesus, and uh, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, okay, that was a lot, right? All kinds of stuff going on. So this text, like uh, much of Genesis, has a lot of wisdom and insight if we're willing to take the time to sort of unpack it all. You, you rush through a story like this, and it's just like, I don't even know where to start. So uh, the first thing, I do want to address um, the overall mistreatment of women, right, via slavery and polygamy that is mentioned in this passage. Appropriately, these are very important issues for us, Um, and the acceptance, the apparent acceptance of these and these practices in this text can bring up some considerable, you know, dis, dis uneasiness or even distrust of the, of the text. Like this is, this is too old, all this stuff going on, it's not relevant to us here, um, However, we have to remember the difference in scripture between a dis- descriptive text and a prescriptive text, right? A descriptive text is just telling us what's, what's happening. And that's what's going on here. The, the author of, uh, of Genesis is merely just describing what happened. Okay, the author is not uh, confirming or denying the acceptability of these practices. In fact, by describing sort of the, the chaos and the this disorder that results as a result of these things, it's easy to say the, that the scripture is saying, hey, these are, these are not actions to be repeated. These are not things that we want to continue doing. Um, surrogacy via, via a female slave was a culturally acceptable practice in this Near Eastern um, society where the resulting child would then be an heir uh, of the owning family. Polygamy was also culturally common um, and it was actually practiced by, by many heroes of the faith throughout, throughout the Bible. However, um, almost universally throughout Scripture, this is, as we, we see polygamy, we see negative consequences pretty much every single time. Um, and so while... The Old Testament doesn't, isn't particularly uh, clear on what's going on. Uh, the New Testament is. Jesus interprets Genesis 2.24 for us in, in Matthew 19, um, describing this lifelong union between one male uh, and one female. And so while we see this disorder and this confusion, especially for us, like what, what's going on with multiple wives and things like this, Jesus clears this up for us in the New Testament. It's very clear um, uh, as he describes uh, Genesis two two 2.24, um, that, that, that marriage is between uh, one male and one female. Uh, so in this case, Abram and Sarah were likely doing what was culturally acceptable, particularly in the case and the barrenness that Sarah was experiencing. Um, however, it will be made clear throughout the remainder of the pat- this passage that cultural acceptance does not equate to God's will. Um, so yeah, so again, I know that was, a, that was pretty quick and a broad view of, of these issues that we have. I, I've went through quite a few texts, and um, so if you're interested in that, I can provide uh, those for you um, if, if anybody's interested. So um, getting back to our, our, the specific text here, getting back to Genesis uh, 16, I believe there's a pattern laid out in this chapter that is very instructive for us as we fight against sin um, in our lives. Right? We fight against temptation and, and against sin in our lives. Okay, so we'll walk through the text here. The first thing we see in the text is, is Sarai's uh, Sarah's covetous desire leading her to distrust God. We also see this culturally accepted remedy available to her in her, her, her circumstances. So she puts these two things together and she forms a plan, and that's what we see um, here. Abram's wife, Sarah had not born any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from having children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. Since the Lord has prevented me from having children, this is the statement that sort of, it's critical to Sarai's understanding and her her coveting and, and her forming of this plan. She wants a child. She wants a family more than anything. And despite what God has told her husband just in the previous chapter, she does not believe God's plan. She does not trust it. She thinks that she has to do something right? And she bases the rest of her actions on this distrust, right? And so I ask you, I, I ask myself, how many, how many of us believe things about God or about ourselves that aren't true? And they lead us, lead us down to these decisions. I mean, do you believe that God wants the best for you? Or like Adam and Eve and Sarah in this situation, do you believe that God is withholding things from you? Do you believe that God is working all things for your good? Or do you believe that God is punishing you for the wrong things you have done? Do you believe that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Roman once tells us? Do you believe, as Psalm 32 tells us, that we are a people who the Lord will never charge with sin? Or do you continue to carry the guilt of your past? Do you believe that you will never conquer that one sin that you struggle with so frequently? Do you believe you can't change? And do you believe that God loves you and cares for you? Like our first parents in the garden, like Sarah in this story, many of our sins and our struggles start with this disbelief of, of what God has told us, about who God is and what he's promised us. Friends, don't, don't believe the lies. This is one of the reasons why spending time in the Word is so important, both individually and, and, and corporately. We are forgetful people. We need to be reminded of the God we serve, of his character, of his promises. And it was never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love, as the Jesus storybook Bible tells us, right? So the first thing we see in this text, first thing that leads us into temptation is this distrust of God and his plan and this coveting um, kind of as a result of that, right? So what do we see next? Uh, Continuing on in verse two, and, and Abram agreed to what Sarai said. The ESV actually renders this text, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So in short, right, Abram put more faith in Sarai's plan than in God's plan. Despite the covenants made with him, despite the visions that he'd just been given in in Genesis 15, and despite the promises of God, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, now this is not entirely unreasonable given the circumstances, right? Um, God had promised Abram, that the heir would come from your own body, from his own body. So Abram could think, okay, that just, that just means me. Um, As I mentioned before, using a surrogate to produce an heir was culturally acceptable. Uh, Plus, they had been in the land of Cana 10 years at this point, and Sarai had not become pregnant. Not only that, but Sarai was his wife. She wanted a child. She was, she was Fearful, she was sad, she was depressed, all of these things. And um, she had been a friend and companion into him for a long time. And so when she comes to him with this, um, Abram, you know, like many of us probably, decided, I, I, guess, I guess I need to do something. I, I need to do something, right? We've heard it, right? God only helps those who help themselves. We've heard that, right? And I think many of us would have done the same. And I think many of us do the same. Like, how many of us have listened to the voice of a close friend? or the voice of the culture, or even the voice of our circumstances, right? Well, the door was open, so a, I got to go through it, right? The voice of our circumstances instead of God's. Um, Abram doesn't seek God's wisdom or guidance in this situation. He had just went through a period where he made, made all these right decisions, and we, as we see in Genesis 13 and, and 14, and God reaffirming his covenant in Genesis 15. But it should be pretty clear to us now that, um, that, that Abram is not, you know, those questions that he was asking himself, right, the fear and the anxiety and the doubt that he had in, in 15 has now come up. Um, so we see Sarah's false premise informing her decisions, and now we see Abram agreeing with her, right, and we're headed for trouble. So continuing through this passage, looking at verse 3, so Abram's wife, Sarah, I took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land for Cana for 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she realized that she was pregnant, she treated her mistress with contempt. Okay, here we do see that Hagar does indeed become pregnant, uh, which makes her treat Sarai with contempt. Right? This means um, Hagar she became prideful, basically, and viewed viewed Sarah as beneath her, as less worthy uh, than her. It's probably fair to assume that uh, that Hagar Hagar stopped uh, obeying Sarah or at least didn't work as hard as before. Um, so we see Sarai's exploitation of Hagar backfiring quickly, right? And the next thing we see is Sarah's reaction to this. Um, Sarai said to Abram, you were responsible for my suffering. I put, my, I put a, my slave in your arms, and ever since she saw that she was pregnant, she has treated me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarai speaks very harshly to Abram. Blaming him for her suffering. So much so that she appeals to God for justice, right? And while Abram is not justified in abdicating his responsibility, neither is Sarai. She actually says what she does. She says, I put my slave in your arms, but she refuses to share her part in the blame. So as our first parents, Adam and Eve, did in the garden, Sarah points to someone else as responsible for the consequences of her sin. She blame shifts. As Tim Keller notes to us, Blame shifting is directly tied to the impulse of self-justification, which is the very essence of sin. Blame blame shifting is something each of us do because it's part of our sinful nature, inherited from our first parents. And it's while it's likely that the person or group that we're trying to shift the blame to bears some responsibility, we cannot ignore our part. Um, So so, so Sarai then, after kind of... Imploring God to seek justice, again, doesn't wait, right? And seeks justice and vengeance on her, uh, herself. And she mistreats Hagar so badly um, that Hagar flees back to Egypt. And meanwhile, Abram basically stands back and throw up, throws up his hands. He says, Abram replies to Sarah, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Okay, we got to remember at this point, Hagar is his wife and she's carrying his child. But. He obviously doesn't treat her uh, the same way he, he views Sarah, but his cowardly and callous response reveals, again, a, a failure to take responsibility for his actions. He attempts to blame shift just like Sarah did. He tries to claim neutrality when it's clear that he still bears, he also bears some of the responsibility, okay? So at this point in the story, everything has unraveled. We can see um, these decisions that were made and the results of those, um, so, but what's the pattern that we see? What's the pattern that we're kind of seeing here? Okay. First thing we see, we see distrust in God's plan, um, which led to, to her coveting something that she, she didn't have. Um, and refusal by Abram uh, to seek God's counsel and then listening, listening to the wrong voices, listening to something, um, telling us something that's not true or the plan that is outside of God's plan. The circumstances then and the culture allowed um, for this sin to go forth, And then we see um, the giving in uh, temptation. And as a result of that, then we see the negative consequences in in blame shifting, right? Um, This is actually a pattern that we've seen before. In Genesis 3, what happens? Satan uses a false premise to cause God, uh, cause Eve to distrust God and to covet something he said not to have. Eve listens to the voice of Satan instead of the voice of God. Her circumstances allowed for her to act on the temptation. She, she and Adam fall into this sin, and then both at the end of that story, both Adam and Eve try to blame shift once the negative consequences of their sin come to light. There's a familiar pattern here, and I believe it's a common pattern to a lot of our sinful decisions. Um, it may not be cle- as clear as it, as it is in this story, um, but I believe there's a pattern um, in all of those. And um, I think we'd be wise to recognize this pattern in our own lives. Um, recognizing this pattern can help us fight our sin from the root. Instead of just check, seeking to change our circumstances, right, we can also dig deeper to the root of our, detru- our distrust with God and fight it with truth. We don't have to listen to the voices. We don't have to listen to the lies. We have truth available for us. All right. So the story ends there, right? Everyone learns their consequences, works harder to do better next time. God waits till they have it all figured out, right, before intervening in their lives again. Because God only helps those who help themselves, right? That's not what we see, right? The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She replies, I am running away from my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord says, you must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. The angel of the Lord also says to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. An angel of the Lord seeks out and finds Hagar, right? The counsel that it, the, this angel gives is both good and bad. He tells Hagar he, she needs to go back to submit to the mistreatment of, of Sarah, which, which first seems like terrible advice, um, and she realized that Hagar has no plan, right? When, so where have you come from and where you're going? There's no plan. Hagar has no plan, right? She just says what she's doing. She's running away. Um, so it seems like terrible advice, but uh, the, in all likelihood, if Hagar continues down this path, she, she, the most likely consequence is death. She is a pregnant slave running away from her owner. She has no rights. She has no privileges. She has no responsibilities. Now we see in Genesis 21, later on down the line that um, she actually, Sarah's resentment doesn't end, um, and they end up kicking out uh, uh, Hagar and Ishmael again, but this time with Abram provides provisions and there's some legal rights that she has. And so um, the most likely scenario for at this point is death. When she goes back and she returns, um, you know, it's not an easy situation, um, but it is what God asked her to do. And the good news uh, that the angel gives is that uh, he plans to make Hagar into a great nation, right? So God uh, seeks out and finds uh, Hagar and comforts her with a promise, okay? So let me finish out the text real quick. Um, The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry uh, of affliction. The man will be like a wild donkey and his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live at odds with his brothers, so she called the place, uh, the, she called the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. And for she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? And this is also why she named the spring, the well of the living one who sees me. It is located between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar gave birth to Ishmael's son, and Abram gave the name, I mean, <laughs> Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son Hagar had. 80, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar brought Ishmael to him. So we see three different names given at the end of the story, and this is why it's important to finish this story out. Okay? So what's the first name? The, the angel gives the name Ishmael to Hagar. Ishmael means God hears. So in this story, it's indicating that God hears uh, the needs and afflictions of his people and is responding to them. Hagar names the angel the God who sees, and she names the well the well of the living one who sees me. So the indication at the end of the story is that Hagar has been heard and seen by God. That is, God has heard our cries of affliction and provides for her needs, right? So consider this. Our story begins with the patriarch and matriarch of the Jewish people, right? Abram and Sarah, the ones who God has specifically chosen to bless the nations through. However, it ends with God seeing and hearing a runaway Egyptian slave who is carrying a child whose hand will be against everyone, okay? As Tim Keller points out to us, we see how God's grace subverts and contradicts, does not condone traditional human social institutions. Hagar is a woman, a slave, a non-believer in Yahweh, and of the race outside the chosen line of Abraham. And yet God comes to her and blesses her. There is a God who notices even the marginal unimportant people, he sees their suffering and their injustice, and he does something about it. What a contrast from the pagan gods who are remote, and will only be moved to action by elaborate prayers and rituals and sacrifice. A God who sees me is a God of grace. Right? Our story doesn't end with God saying, try harder, maybe you'll do better next time. Much like we see in Genesis 3, where God provides clothing for Adam and Eve, um, God not only hears and sees us, but he also provides for us. God knows that we cannot keep our end of the covenant. He knows these things. And this is why in Genesis 15, he promises to uphold our part of the covenant as well as our own. He doesn't leave us alone, right? And we know from the rest of the, from the rest of scripture that he does exactly that, that we fail him, and he provides for us. God's ultimate provision for us was Jesus, the one who rescues us from sin and separation from God, the one who pays the debt that we owe for breaking the covenant, the one who who makes a way for us. God is a God who keeps his promises. So what's the overall pattern that we see in Genesis 16? I went through half of it already, but we see distrust in God's plan and leading to coveting. We see a refusal to seek God's counsel and listening, then uh, leading to listening to the wrong voices. We see circumstances and a culture that allow for this sin. Then we see the giving in to the temptation and we see the negative consequences and then we see blame shifting. The story doesn't end there. We see a God who sees us, a God who hears us and a God who provides a way for us. God knows what our hearts need and he knows that we're incapable of doing in our own and he provided a way for us. Jesus is our ultimate provision. Jesus was cut off from God so that we don't have to be. We see over and over. Guys, the story, if Genesis 16, if I had to describe it, it was like uh, a lot of people making a de- bad decisions, God providing a way. God seeking us, God um, coming after us and, and rescuing us when we don't, we don't deserve it. And so our motivation for fighting sin is not fear, Right, but love. Our motivation is in um, an awe and a wonder of what God has done for us. Right, I think it's it's healthy for us as we continue to fight against sin to look at our circumstances. Are there things that I can do that help me not fall and fall given to temptation and sin? Right, you're you're struggling with anger. Well, look, there's these triggers that make me angry, let's let's try to do something about that. All those things are wise. And even moving back up and saying, "Okay, what are, what am I believing about God that's not true? Why why am I thinking these things? Why why do I think I need that certain thing? Why do I need that um, job or?" You know, why do I need a sp? you know, me married? Wh- whatever it is, what are these things that we covet? All of these things, like where are these roots and in in, where are we not believing what God, God's promises? Those things are really healthy for us to think about and, to, think of, and to, to move and to discuss. This is what our fight clubs are for, right? We sit here and we, we talk about those things and we try to figure out, okay, I'm not spending time in the word. Okay, well, let's try to get up earlier. We'll help you do that. Um, and once you get that, you can kind of unpack and you can fight sin that way. But what if we still fail? I mean, if it's up to us, I mean, the story we tell lies, this, no, this isn't my wife, this is my sister, no, or we say, we're going to, we're going to do it, I'm going to do this my way. I know, God, you have given me a way, you have given me a vision, you have shown me the way to do it, but I'm going to do this my way. We all do these things, but yet, God, as we see in this text, God goes to us when we have nothing to give to him. Hagar had nothing. You could actually probably make the case that Hagar had seen Abram's and Sarah's action and wanted nothing to do with God, their God, right? It's like, if these people are gonna act this way, I don't want to associate with them. But fortunately, God goes to her and sees her and rescues her in her helplessness. She could do nothing, but he he sees her, he hears her, and he provides for her. And we have to see that for us um, as Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate provision. Jesus is the one um, who, this is how we can say there's no condemnation for Christ Jesus, right? This is how we can say that our sin will not be counted against us because Jesus himself has been cut off, uh, was cut off from God on the cross uh, on our behalf. Um, Say, pray with me, please. God, we, we thank you for this time, and we, we thank you for your provision in Jesus. Um, Jesus, um, just an amazing story, God. We, we have nothing to bring. We can uh, seek and, and strive and try to find our own way and try to do our own thing, um, God. But ultimately, God, we will, we will fail. Um, but that didn't stop you from providing for us. That didn't stop you from seeing us. That didn't stop you from hearing us, and that didn't stop you from providing a way for us. We are incredibly grateful for, um, for that truth. And God, will that be the truth that motivates us to fight sin? God, uh, and the destructive and consequences of sin um, are, are visible in everywhere in each of our lives. Um, and may we fight against sin. May we fight for the truth um, all the while knowing and understanding, God, that you are a God um, who sees us, a God who hears us, and a God who provides for us even when we can't. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. So, at this point in the service uh, every week, we remember God's provision for us, right? Something we see uh, very clearly um, on the cross, and even the night before um, Jesus was crucified, um, this idea of being like... So, in Genesis 15, part of the covenant was for for God basically saying, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, and if you don't keep your end of the covenant, I will be the one who's cut off. I will pay the punishment. Right? And we see that. So the night that Jesus, before Jesus was um, crucified, we see um, him coming to his disciples and saying, um, this is my body, broken for you. Literally cut in half, cut for you. Just like the pieces um, that we see in Genesis uh, Genesis 15. Um, So um, This is the the body of Christ um, broken for us, right? And the blood. See, the blood of Christ shed for us. Again, remembering the provision, remembering the cost of what God has done for us, Um, and uh, just the amazing sacrifice that was given to us, the amazing promise that God kept to us by providing a way for us. Um. So what we do in this time, uh, we, we, we take the body and the blood of Christ to remember um, what God has done for us. Uh, so if you are a believer, um, if you would consider yourself a child of God, if you uh, feel, um, if you are a follower of Christ, right, this, this is for you. You don't have to be a member of the church to come um, come take communion. We, we will serve uh, to anybody who is a follower of Christ. And so uh, we do ask that if... Um, if you don't, if you don't consider yourself a child of God, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, um, that you would, you know, think about, think about how how do you reconcile these things? If if you strive really hard, but you fail, then what? Right, and so, and we think about. Uh, all these things and, and the sacrifice provided for us, that is why we remember this every week. That is why we take the body and we take the blood. Um, um, but if you would not describe yourself as a follower of Christ, um, just just kind of hang back during this time. This is kind of a family thing. We'll come and we'll um, take communion together um, as a family. Um, so I, I would encourage you during this time too, for everyone, um, you know, as Chris and uh, the band, as they kind of play that, um, you think about the provision that was made for us, right? We have A God who sees us, a God who hears us, and a God who provides for us. We are not alone in this. Um, and so whenever you're ready, uh, come and, and take